Welcome to It's a Good Life podcast, where it's all about helping entrepreneurs think, feel, and do better. Here's your host, Brian Buffini. Well, welcome to It's a Good Life, and we're going to cover our second installment with the great Pat Lencioni. Pat's been going over his fantastic content, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team, a book that sold six million copies. And of course, uh, along the last few years, Pat's been teaching and working with major corporations so that he really is taking this content even beyond what was in the book. Why we're so excited to have him in person at our team conference in September. We covered the first three dysfunctions, an absence of trust, the fear of conflict, and the lack of commitment. I can see the pyramid building. I understand. it's One's built on the next. So once we have the commitment, then we can get into the fourth one, which is accountability. So speak to that, if you will. Well, so, and here's how it connects. If people don't think their teammates are really bought in, why in the world would they hold them accountable? If they knew they went to the meeting and, and nodded and smiled and, and, and didn't really buy in, why would they turn to them a week later, a month later and go, hey, you're not doing what you agreed to do? Now, notice what I just said, though, Brian, what peers turning to one another and holding them accountable. When it comes to accountability on a team, peer pressure is the best thing. It's not the leader. The leader needs to be the ultimate source of accountability, but not the primary source. On the, on the greatest teams, sports or anything else, people don't go to the coach or the leader and say, hey, Bob's not doing what he said, or Mary's not doing what she said. They go to each other and go, hey, Bob, Mary, what's going on? That's how it works. That's effective, it's efficient, and it builds teamwork. But if they didn't commit, if there's not real buy-in, they're not going to do that. Now, I will tell you, Brian, this is the lowest scoring. We have, a, we have an online assessment that people take uh, on a team, and it gives them a color around all these five dysfunctions. This is consistently, not always, but generally the lowest area of score. Even when people will conflict with each other, even when they'll commit to something, when you have to turn to somebody and say, you're not doing good enough or I need more from you, boy, people, people don't want to do that. It feels so risky to turn to somebody and say, yeah, that wasn't quite good enough. I know you, I need more. And yet the very best teams in the world do not hesitate to do that. What's well, interesting. So I, I got to see this firsthand. I was telling you, we were talking about Beverly, uh, my bride. So she was on the U.S. national volleyball team that went to the Seoul Korea Olympics in 1988. So from 1985 to 1988, those four years, she's training, they're traveling. It's a full-time gig, six hours a day seven days a week, 42 weeks a year, they're traveling. And of course, I, I fall hard for this gal. I, I fell hard for her and she did not fall hard for me. So I, I was in full pursuit mode. <laughs> Every ounce of salesmanship and showmanship and everything I possess, but this was going to be my girl. So I would go and watch some practice. And I would sit in the federal building right here in Balboa Park. And there was two side-by-side courts. There was the women's team and there was the men's team. And the men's team were the legendary Karch Karai and Red Sand and all these guys, Craig Buck. Those guys won three Olympic medals. I remember those guys. And they were after each other the entire time they were on the court. And they were, you know, Karch was the D leader and he held everybody very accountable. And we've had Karch on this show and he was like, ah, maybe I look back on it now, maybe I was too intense. But the rest of the team, they were riding each other too. And on the court, on the right where my bride was, it was a different style of leadership from the top. And it was the Sunshine Fest. Oh, you can do it, Pookie. Great job. And that you love you. Great hug, hug, kiss, kiss, mm. high fives. All the sounds. <laughs> this team went on to win three Olympic medals. Beverly's team finished seventh. And when you go to the Olympics and you, 
people at every, every dinner party we've been at for the past 30 years together. Yo, you went to the Olympics. And did you win a medal? No. Oh, that's too bad. And it's like, she was an Olympic volleyball player, man. That's enough. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> She's in the Hall of Fame. She's amazing. But I watched those two teams in front of my eyes. And one had a significant, almost radical level of accountability. And the other had none. It had none. And they were friendly to one another. But I will say this. The men's team to this day, they hang out together. They respect each other. They get together at reunions. The gals team, not so much. I was just going to say, I bet they ended up tighter Yep, as people. Because human beings, you know, accountability is an act of love. Mm. If I love you, Brian, and I see you doing something that's not good for, for yep. our, the team we're on or even in your life, love yep. requires me to say, Brian, you can do better. Right. Self-love makes me say, I don't want to do that because it could make him think poorly of me. And right. I would rather preserve my reputation mm -hmm. than help him be better. We have permission parenting today where people don't want to have difficult conversations with their kids, don't want to hold their kids accountable, have read all the different pop psychology books. And it says, you know, you got to be your kid's friend and you got to come alongside him. And, and I said to him all the time, I'll be your friend later in life. Right now, I'm your dad. And, you know, thank God it's worked out that way. But the truth of the matter is that is the same with a family. It's the same with a team. You have to have the accountability. It needs to be done with grace because you're not trying to destroy trust. It needs to be done in such a way you're not trying to be liked because liked is not an end result. You know, it's just not. And so I see this kind of building. I've seen it in my own eyes. I've seen it in businesses. And I've certainly seen it with the thousands of teams that we serve in the real estate space and the mortgage space, which are very hard because they're typically three to five people. Right. They're small teams. They all know each other. You know the family problems. You know Mary's son is going through a problem and so-and-so just didn't get into the college they want and her husband's not treating her right. And you know all these difficulties. And because of that, it's very hard to have these boundaries. It's very hard to hold people accountable. Well, and I love Henry Cloud's stuff on boundaries. And you need those. Mm. But we, we draw those boundaries so tight in society that says, go to work and don't bring yourself. And the teams that perform are the ones that say, they sit down at a meeting and before they do anything, they go, how are you doing? You, you seem like you're frustrated. Right. Like, yeah, I'm having right. some problems at home. Let's talk about that. Or heaven forbid, let's pray together. And then people are fully alive and they're like, now let's go get stuff done. It's interesting culturally. So we have a wonderful group of guys helping us with our show. We really made a commitment. We rebranded this show. We've repositioned it and we really want to reach as many people as we can worldwide. And we have a couple of guys in Ireland who are actually helping us out. One is a brand marketer, brilliant guy named Kevin Keenan, and another gentleman named J.M. LaRue. And J.M. is French-Canadian who married an Irish girl, so he ends up in Ireland. So we Classic. are here, and we're having our first few meetings and so on and so forth. We're on Zoom, and he finally raised his hand, and he said, just so you know, guys, I've learned, because we have five Irish guys on this Zoom call, I understand that you guys have to talk about everything related to your families and your lives and what's going on and sports and everything else before we can get to the meeting. And just so you know, I've allowed an extra 20 minutes on every meeting so we can do that stuff first. And he had to learn because it was a, a natural cultural thing for Irish people that we have to kind of connect. Used to being in the pub, used to being in church, used to being in communities where you got to, yeah, well, what's going on first before we get down to business? And he saw that culturally. And even though, hey, we got to get this stuff done, uh, it's interesting watching him adapt to it. And now he's like, hey, this is kind of a better way to do business. You know what I say? We, we have a saying here at our company, The Table Group, and that is, we're not efficient, we're effective. 
Efficiency says, okay, we're going to get in there and every moment of the meeting is going to be used. It's like, no, we will go where we need to go around each other and caring for each other. And then the, the best things will come from that. But if you micro, micro measure the efficiency, you will, you will start meetings on time and end them on time and no one will waste any effort and you will barely scratch the surface of your potential. Yeah, get nothing done. Well, let's talk about the last one, which is important, because you and I don't believe in participation trophies, and it's certainly hard. What's the point of having a team? Inattention to results. I see this a lot. I see a lot of teams get so stuck in process, they forget about outcomes. And so inattention to results is the fifth dysfunction. To me, you know, I had a privilege of interviewing Neil Armstrong. It was his first public appearance in 15 years. And, you know, it was personal notes. I built relationship with him. I built trust with him over an extended period of time. And his first public speaking engagement was to 5,000 realtors, you know, in 15 years. And I said, how are we able to do this? And he said, well, Kennedy said, we're going to put a man on the moon. We're going to bring him safely to Earth by the end of the decade. He said, it was the simplest, purest goal of all time. We're going to put a man on the moon, bring him safely to Earth. That's the part that Armstrong got interested in. (laughs) And then by the end of the decade, he said, there were 11 different branches of the government. There were 40 different companies involved. In the 1960s, he, went, he was in that rocket with less technology than on our cell phones. And yet they were able to pull it off. And he said, because the result was there, man on the moon, safely to earth, end of the decade. And he said, every team was broken up by the three results. And that's so key because people will say, oh, I think, and I love the, the volleyball example. I'll probably use that in every talk I give about this, around the, the conflict and accountability. But, but so many people say, yeah, we have a good team. And it's like, do, do you win? No, we don't win that many games where we really get along. And I say, you know, that's great, but that's a crappy team that likes one another. And if, if all of this is just social, then maybe that's worthwhile. But if you're trying to accomplish something, and that's the purpose of an organization or an enterprise, work backward from what do we need to do to get there. And, and you're not going to be focused. You can't stay focused on the collective results of the team if you're not holding each other accountable for what's necessary. And then... But we're not going to hold each other accountable if we didn't buy in. And we're not going to buy in if we didn't argue. And we're not going to argue if we don't trust. But it all peaks at results. Right. Not because and, – and people think, well, that sounds very cold. It's, is, it, is it all about money? No, it's about the, the fruit of your efforts. Right. Money is a, is a secondary product of, what, of doing that. But if you're a, a professional sports team, you're there to win games. Well, it's interesting. You know, I, I get to go home to Ireland. And I, I got my mom and dad, they're in their 90s. They're still there. God bless them in the same house I grew up in. I know so many people. We were so connected in a lot of ways. When I get home, I, I go there to see mom and dad. And there's a, everyone and their brother wants to see me. But there's one group of people I see regularly. And these are guys that I won a national championship with in 1984. And it was this collective effort, this team that came together. Was it Gaelic football? It was actually soccer. We actually were the, we won the All-Ireland Soccer Championship. Wow. And we came together. And that group, we get together. We keep up on one another. I've never been to a school reunion. I've never been to any of these things. But I get together with those guys regularly. And how are you doing? And how's it going on in your marriage and life and your kids? And what are you doing now? But it's that bond brought us together. It was the collective effort to go and accomplish something. And that accomplishment took place. And it the accomplishment galvanized the relationships. It becomes part of that dynamic together. And it deepened trust. You know, there was lots of conflict on the way, which deepened trust. There was no lack of commitment. We were all bought in. There was accountability throughout the whole process. And at the end of the day, I still get to have this little gold medal in my home 
that says national champion. And, uh, you know, if I've had a fire where everything burned down, thankfully that one was in Ireland, but if it was burning down today, that's one of the ones I take, you know? You know, and what's funny about that is think about this, contrast that, and, and it's not just the final winning, because let's say you were in that last game and you lost. Sure. Yeah. It was how committed you guys were. Now think about every mediocre team you might have ever, like if you ever on a team where when you were a kid and the coach didn't care, or if you were in a company and it was mediocre, nobody wants to see those people again. Because <laughs> it's like, we didn't even grow together or make each other better. It's, it's about putting it out there. And it, there's risks involved of trusting and being vulnerable and having conflict and committing to something you're not sure and holding them accountable you don't know. And then going for the final, whatever you're trying to accomplish, people look to each other after that and go, I want more of that. That's why you want to see them. It's interesting you say that. It just hit me while you were saying it, because I think about some of the teams I was on. There, I've been on a couple of mediocre teams. And I also, as you mentioned, it just this thought just came to my mind. I think I was kind of mediocre on those teams. So when I, I don't want to get together with those people. I don't want that remembrance of myself. When I get together with these guys, I felt like I was at my best. Like, I come back from meeting with those guys, and then I come here, and I got to go do a seminar or an event or some project with the company. And I'm like, yeah, that guy. You know, that guy, I want that guy to show up. It's funny, like, just talking here, I'd even forgotten some of those things I was a part of. Right. Yeah, they don't even stand out because we're kind of blocking it. We're like, yeah, that's not a memory I want to conjure up a lot and, and draw from. There's nothing to draw from that other than the regret of not having gone harder. Well, Pat, I've had uh, everyone and their brother on this show from billionaires to movie stars to great Hall of Fame athletes. And there's five questions I ask everybody. And it gives the audience a little, kind of a different flavor of who you are, where you come from, how you tick. So I want to dive in there if I can for a sec. Thanks again for being here today. It's been fantastic. And uh, whets the appetite for me. I can't wait uh, till we're together again in, in the Biltmore in Arizona. That's going to be great. So here's the first one I have. What's the single best piece of advice you've ever received? Wow. Well, I mean, it, it wasn't, it, so I have two answers. I mean, the advice that I keep getting every time I go to church or read the Bible, and that is just, without Jesus, for me, n nothing matters. So he is everything. So that's the best. But here's a very micro piece of advice a guy gave me once. I was working at a, a technology company, and I was, I don't know, I was 25. And, and this guy, maybe I was 27, and this guy uh, was a senior vice president. He'd done all this stuff. He was well-known. And he turned to me. We were at a meeting one day, and he said, hey, Pat, uh, do you have kids? And I said, no, 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 not yet. And he goes, oh, I do. And I have a 16-year-old son. I don't even know him because I've been working so hard. Don't ever do that. Okay, let's get into the presentation now. And I was like... The gift that was and how raw it was. And for him to say that, so many executives would never say that. But he was just like, offered that to me. It was like, what a gift. His name was Stu. Stu, what a gift that was. And I tell you, when I got into my business and people would say, do you want to go overseas and do this? Do you want to do this? I'd go, no, 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 no. No, my son, I, I'm coaching his team. Or, oh, he has first confession this, this weekend. I'm going to go to that instead. And I got to thank Stu for that. So that was the best piece of advice. Well, and I've watched it firsthand, and I had a chance to meet your kids, uh, Matt, today, and you've done well, sir. You've done well. You learned from someone else's mistake. You took their advice and uh, dedicated your life accordingly. And it's why the table group is strong, which is why the best-selling books come. It's why Working Genius is off and running. It's, it's that foundation, because without that foundation, everything else falls in on top of itself. Yes. Now, let me say this, and then I made my own mistakes— and I think about Stu, and I think, now I want to share those with people. And I, sometimes it's hard. Sometimes I'm like, oh, I just want to keep, no, 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 I have to share those.
Yeah, it's even more powerful. Power is perfected in weakness. Yes. What's the one talent or gift you wish you possessed that you don't? Oh, wow. I have no, I mean, I have no manual dexterity when it comes to, I'm good at sports, but like I have never hung a painting on a wall. And I have tried, I've split more walls and put cracks in things. I really have no practical ability at all. And thank God that I'm okay with that because I could really question my masculine, um, my masculinity because I cannot do anything practical. And my wife, half the time, she goes, give me that. And I'm like, I'm sorry. I know I'm supposed to be able to. And I'm really, I'm very bad at that. That's, that's not a small thing. There's many practical things in life. And I have sons that are much better than I am at those things. And they, I think they just look at me and they go, who are you sometimes? They appreciate well, the good stuff. Thankfully, all that stuff in the mind shows up on the pages. So I appreciate that. You know, <laughs> I've had best-selling books, but I'm a speaker who writes. Ah. You know, you're a writer who also can speak. And it's, that's a rare combination. You know, I like to say, if I were born 100 years ago or I lived, I, I watch, I love Westerns. And I would go, I would be worthless. Like, like they, the guy, they ride into the town, they go, there's the worthless guy over there. He has some good <laughs> advice for you, maybe he can't do a damn thing. <laughs> he can help you. He can help you build a posse. <laughs> yeah, I can convince people. He can't ride a horse though, or put a shoe on. I watch one, those but... Alaska shows. You know, the guys oh. up there by himself. And my my wife would come in. Perfect. Go. Why? Why do you watch these? And I go because I know I would starve. <laughs> exactly. the The second day on Survivor, I'd be like, <laughs> "There are mosquitoes out here. Get me off this place." <laughs> okay, which book has been most instrumental in your life? Ooh, wow, there's so many. Um, there's, I'm going to go with two. There's a little pink book. It's pink, too, out here called How, how to, how to Ma- Build and Maintain Peace. It's the worst title ever. And it's by, gosh, I should even remember his name. He's a, he's a priest in, um, in... How to uh, Build and Maintain Peace. Peace. Beautiful. And it's a little treatise on peace. And I read it. I've read it many times. And every time I read it, I go, I should read this every single day of my life. In fact, I'm gonna, while we're doing this, I'm going to see if Matt will go get it. Matt, it's on the bookshelf in the hallway in there, so I can cite it. But the other one is, uh, there's a writer named Dean Koontz. Oh, yeah. And he writes these books. The people that don't know him would call them horror, but they're not horror at all. They're, there's these supernatural, beautiful books with underlying spiritual themes. And he wrote a book called Brother Odd. He wrote a series called Odd Thomas, but the one in particular is called Brother Odd, and it's about life and humanity and, and where God is in it. But it's this fiction, and he's like one of the best fiction writers of our time. He'd be Dickens wow. in a different era. So wow, Brother wow. Odd... I would, have, I would have bet money that Dean Koontz wasn't coming up in this conversation. I know, That's but awesome. here's the... I, I got the book. Thank you, Matt. And it's Father Jacques Philippe, French Jacques Philippe, Searching for and Maintaining Peace, a small treatise on peace of heart. So it's a little pink book with a flower on it. Yeah, say it again. Searching for and Maintaining Peace, a small treatise on peace of heart. And I picked it up once. I thought, there's no way a pink book with a flower on it. I'm going to read this book, and it's the best book I have. That's why I have it here in my office. I have a stack of them, you know. Yeah, well, I will be ordering one today, my friend, so I'm all about it. A couple of things. You're flicking through the channels, and there's a movie that comes up. It's the one you watch over and over and over again. No matter what, this is the one you watch. Or you watch parts of it. Well, what one movie? Well, every year I watch The Passion of the Christ, and I can't stop watching it. It's, I'm five minutes into it, and I'm like, I can't stop. But It's a Wonderful Life. And I, I, I thought about it when It's a Good Life. It's a Wonderful Life is like, I, I, George Bailey, I want to be like him. Yeah, well, you are my friend. You are my friend, and I... I... Well, well, well I, Mr. Mr. Potter, I, I, you're, a, you're a mean man. It's the one impression I can do is George Bailey. 
<laughs> Can't hang a painting, but that's a mean Jimmy Stewart. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Pat Lancioni, what does the good life mean to you? Oh, it's peace. It's it gets back to this Ooh. book. It's not about. It's about having peace every day. You know, one of the things that that somebody, a friend, pointed out to me recently is when we say the prayer, the Lord's prayer, it's our daily bread. Mm. And I, I, I'm always, I, I, for so long I was worried about my weekly bread, my monthly bread, my annual bread, and the bread for the future. And it's like, no, just today. The bread of today is enough. And so, so that's peace. It's, and, and that's better than, I mean, and I love to accomplish things. I love to get things done. I, but if I don't have peace, n- none of that matters. And so it's, it's, that's, that's really what it's about. The good life is about having peace, no matter the circumstances. Mm-hmm. No, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. And it is one day at a time yeah. for all of us. And yeah. uh, we, we, we all get ahead of ourselves. We have an epidemic of anxiety in this world right now. And our young Absolutely. people are struggling like never before. And, it is uh, we've absolutely so many an epidemic. Yeah. And, and I will just say, you know, I, when, we, when, we, when we move God aside and act like we can do it all ourselves and that life is about avoiding suffering and maximizing our momentary desires, it's a recipe for deep, deep sadness, like the, the, the worst kind of sadness. And the good news is there's peace available to us all. And, absolutely. Uh, it's, it's a good life. It's a good life. Well, let me say this. My life has gotten... More enriched by getting to know you, becoming friends. I'm excited for the things we get to do together in the future and be a part of. Right back at you. Totally. You know, we're championing good causes to try to help people live the good life, live in a respect and understand the freedoms that we have, embrace those, and uh, continue to champion those causes and help people have good businesses and good teams and good families, good health and good faith, and um, even good resources that come uh, to live the good life, and that's what we're all about. And, and you know, I want to say last thing is, and it's time that we loved our society and people enough to step out and encourage them to pursue freedom and truth. Not in a, because like it's easy to kind of bunker down and go, well, the world is tur- going upside down. Take the risk to step up to somebody and explain to them why truth is good for them and freedom is good. And if we all did that in love, boy, the world would change because it needs it. Freedom, I'm all for it, man. You bet. One good person at a time, one good family at a time, one good business at a time, one good team at a time, right? That's how we can get there. Well, thank you, my friend. We're going to leave it today with uh, a little tradition. And uh, you'd never got a chance to meet my mom. She's 91 years of age. Pat, she's still in Dublin in the same house I grew up in. They've lived there since 1957. But she ends uh, every episode we do with a little Irish blessing because we want people to take these words to heart, take them home, and be a blessing to him. So we're going to finish our great chat with Pat Lencioni today with a little blessing from Therese Buffini. Over to you, ma'am. May the road rise up to meet you, and may the wind always be at your back. May the rain fall soft upon your fields, and the sun shine warm upon your face. And until we meet again, may God hold you in the hollow of his hand. See you next time. 